Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, we are continuing this week with our series on uh, demons, idols, and the culture of death. So, if you haven't tuned in the last several episodes, first, we looked at demons, uh, who they are, what they do, and, and essentially the argument I have been trying to make through Scripture is that they are, of course, fallen angels, uh, evil spiritual creatures um, that are part of the kingdom of Satan, and they sit behind false gods and idols and promote uh, evil doctrines, teachings, beliefs, and practices. And they go about basically twisting what God has created And their goal is to destroy God's creation and destroy the image of God and to overthrow all of it. Then we looked at the concepts of paganism. And this is based on an article that Peter Jones wrote about 20-some years ago regarding paganism. And the fundamentals of paganism kind of revolve around three principles. This is true for all cultures that, that experience or practicing paganism. The first is that everything is unity, many rows at the top of the mountain, essentially relativism. Your truth is your truth, my truth is mine. Uh, The second principle is that there's a divine spark in each of us. So we are essentially little gods that roam around. Uh, We create things, speak things into existence. We are our own law, so very self-centered. And the third uh, principle is that we are trying to escape or control creation to escape from the constraints of creation or to dominate um, and have absolute control over creation. So then we looked at different categories of deities. There's gods of nature, so the things that are outside of us, uh, God's creation, things like that. Then there's gods of inner consciousness, our, our identities and how we feel. And there's gods of events, such as marriage or war or building something or harvesting something, planting something things like that. And we saw that the people of Israel struggled with the three primary false gods of Baal, Asherah, and Moloch. And we looked at Asherah the past several weeks. Um, We looked at Baal before that, Baal being a focus on power, uh, and his desire is to overthrow the hierarchy that God has established and to establish his own hierarchy. Then we looked at Asherah, and her goal was to blur all distinctions and to Um, join what God has divided, such as gender, and to divide what God has joined, such as marriage and family. This week, we're going to look at the third of the three, Moloch. So to begin, Moloch, the word Moloch, simply means king. Now, in the written Hebrew language, uh, they only wrote consonants, not vowels. Vowels existed, but they weren't written. They were just kind of understood in the context Uh, what the vowels should be, so how the word would be pronounced, okay? So, for example, Yahweh is written with the letters in English. The letters are Y-H-W-H. So they're all essentially consonants, uh, and you would see those those words, and you would just know how to pronounce the word. Well, the same is true with words like Moloch. So Moloch is simply the word M-L-K. In the English language, that's what the letters would be. So, How you pronounce that or how you fill in the gaps with the vowels, well, that depends on the context of the the writing, to know what exactly that word is. Now, the word typically is an O or an E, 
Molech or Melech, right? Uh, but either way, uh, when it's referring to the, this god, this false god, Molech, uh, the word means king. But there is a debate among scholars that the Israelites uh, adjusted or changed the vowels as a way to um, mock this false god. So if you change the vowels a certain way, uh, the word becomes shame rather than king. So maybe, and the argument goes, is that maybe the Israelites were trying to uh, say that, well, he's not king, he's a shameful king or the king of shame, something like that. But either way, uh, Moloch or Melech means king. And we see this in names such as Abimelech. Abimelech means son of the king or Ebed-Melech means servant of the king. So those names, right? Now, Moloch, like I said before, uh, Baal is a very generic term for lord or master, and Moloch is a very generic term for king. And there's variations of the word in different cultures. So for the Ammonites, their specific name of the deity is Milcom. That is the Moloch of the Ammonites. That is their king. Or for the city of Tyre is Melkart, which would be the letters M-L-K-Q-R-T. And that means king of the city. Okay, so Melkart is the version of Moloch for the people of Tyre. Now, what about the mythology of this, of this god? Well, he is a god of both death and resurrection a god of fertility, of life, and afterlife. And the idea being that sacrifice and death will lead to fruitfulness, life, and harvest. Now, a lot of this is drawn from the Epic of Baal, which we've looked at in previous episodes. In that story, Baal took uh, control of all the gods. He rules all the gods. But the god of death, Mot, who, as he is known in the Epic of Baal, he also wants to rule the gods and wants to challenge Baal for his throne. Baal refuses to give up his throne, and Mot is angered because of it. So they fight, and Mot devours Baal, eats him, kills him. Now, when this happens, Anath, or Asherah, mourn Baal's death. Uh, and out of vengeance, Anath kills Mot, scatters his flesh as fertilizer, and this brings Baal back to life. And of course, the struggle continues with Mott and Baal going at it with each other. Uh, and the fight becomes a standstill. And in some of the other mythologies, such as the descent of Inanna, when she, Inanna, who is also known as Asherah in other cultures, goes down to the underworld to rescue the bull of heaven, or maybe some argue Tammuz, who is also Baal in another name, um, she does rescue him, but the god of death demands sacrifice or payment for her to come back and to bring Baal back to life. And so in the Descent of Inanna, we are told, quote, no one ascends from the underworld unmarked. If Inanna wishes to return from the underworld, she must provide someone in her place, end quote. And so this leads to several different concepts, the connection of the cycles of the seasons, okay, where there's death for a season, and then there's life and, and harvest and blooming for another season. Uh, it's applied to agriculture. It's applied to fertility. And the idea is that someone else must be sacrificed or something must be sacrificed 
in order for there to be success or fruitfulness or victory in whatever it is you're trying to do. The, the God of death demands substitute, demands payment for, um, for success. We see similar mythologies in Cronus or Saturn. Cronus being the Greek version. Saturn is the Roman version. Um, Saturn is the uh, god of the harvest, holds a sickle. Okay, He deposed his father, but he learned that he'd be overthrown by his own children, so he kills them all to prevent the prophecy from being fulfilled. One child, Zeus, also known as Baal, is not killed, and Zeus overthrows Cronus, fights him, and forces him to give up his to give up the, the devoured children. So in this way, there's a kind of resurrection or bringing back from, from the dead, uh, which Baal accomplishes that in his fight against this god of the harvest uh, who holds the sickle or the scythe, which, by the way, is also what death holds in a lot of the depictions of the grim reaper, right, who holds a scythe. So anyways, um, that we have some parallels there. We also have some parallels in the theme of the Minotaur. So in the story of the Minotaur, uh, the Athenians, for some reason, killed the son of King Minos, okay, who I think lived on Crete, perhaps. Uh, but they're punished for that. King Minos gets revenge, and the requirement is that the Athenians have to send, every so often, I don't know if it's every year or every couple years, they have to send men and women to Crete. And they're given to the Minotaur. Okay, and the Minotaur had the body of a man and the head of a bull. And this Minotaur would devour them as kind of a, a payment so the Athenians could be left alone and not face judgment. And this depiction of a half man, half bull creature is what Moloch is described as. Moloch is described as a statue, typically of metal, with the body of a human in the head of a bull. Now, usually in the worship of Moloch in the Old Testament, this statue would have been placed outside of the city, not at a high place so much, because that's kind of where Baal and Asherah live, but in a valley, in the low places. Because remember, Moloch is with the realm of the dead, down, low, in the ground, in the earth. Now, in Scripture, we see an example of this place known as Topheth, or Topheth, depending on how they pronounce it. Uh, and it's located in the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem. So just one reference of it is 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, which talks about King Josiah, and it says this about what he did. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. So in these places, the statue would be set up and would receive burnt offerings, some of which would include children. And the priests who administered this place of sacrifice would wear bull masks. So they would kind of be the embodiment of the god as half-human, half-bull uh, creatures. Now, the purpose of doing all this, like I said, was to earn favor, divine blessing, for harvest and fertility. Essentially, any kind of success that you wanted in any kind of event that was taking place, you would want to make a sacrifice. To kind of, It was kind of like an insurance policy or a way to guarantee success 
um, to either stave off judgment or to make sure that the gods get what they deserve so that they give you the blessing. And it was also understood that it, the greater the event, the more difficult the event, the more greater the blessing that you wanted, the more greater the sacrifice that was needed. And I want to read to you now a description of an example of a statue of Moloch uh, described by George Moore in his work, The Image of Moloch. Here's what he says, quote, His idol stood in the innermost of seven chambers or cells, separated by grated doors. The worshiper who offered a bird was admitted to the first or outer cell. He who offered a goat to the second, sheep to the third, a calf to the fourth, a young steer to the fifth, a bull to the sixth, and he who brought his son as an offering alone might enter into the seventh, the presence chamber of the deity. The idol itself had the head of a calf upon a human body. Its arms were extended, with the hands open like those of a man who is to receive something from another. The image was hollow, we must suppose of metal, and was heated by a fire from within, till the hands were glowing. The priest took the child from its father, and laid it in the hands of Moloch, where it was burned to death. The priest, meanwhile, violently beating drums, that the cries of the victim might not be heard by the father, and move his heart, end quote. Now, these child sacrifices were, like I said, for any big project or event, and I want to read another account, this time from the Greek historian Clitarchus. He wrote this around 300 BC regarding the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians, who, by the way, are distant relatives of the Canaanites. Here's what he says, quote, Phoenicians, and above all Carthaginians, worship Cronus. If they wish to achieve something big, they devote a child of theirs, and in the case of success, sacrifice it to the god. There is a bronze statue of Cronus among them, which stands upright with open arms and palms of its hands facing upwards above a bronze brazier on which the child is burnt. End quote. Now, like I said, sacrifice was also made not just for success, but to avoid wrath or judgment. And here is an account of the historian Diodorus. He's writing this around 100 BC, and this is in reference to the city of Carthage. Here's what he says, quote, They also alleged that Cronus had turned against them, inasmuch as in former times they had been accustomed to sacrifice to this god, the noblest of their sons. But more recently, secretly buying and nurturing children, they had sent these to the sacrifice, and when an investigation was made, some of those who had been sacrificed were discovered to have been substituted by stealth. In their zeal to make amends for the omission, they selected 200 of the noblest children and sacrificed them publicly, and others who were under suspicion sacrificed themselves voluntarily, in number not less than 300. There was in the city a bronze image of Cronus, extending its hands, palms up, sloping towards the ground, so that each of the children, when placed there, thereon, rolled down and fell into a sort of gaping pit filled with fire. End quote. Now, we see a brief mention of whose children it is. Is it the noblest of children, or is it the impoverished children? And it is interesting that these Carthaginians at first sacrificed the noblest of children because, of course, the god of death demands the purest sacrifice, and the better the sacrifice, the better the blessing. But 
apparently some people were either purchasing orphans or or poor children as raising up impoverished children in order to sacrifice instead of their own children. So we see here that usually it ends up being that those who are poor or without means are more likely to give up their children for sacrifice or have their children uh, taken for sacrifice. And, and we see an example of this in Plutarch's writings. Uh, and he wrote this uh, from his book On Superstition uh, around 180, so 100 years after the birth of Christ, we have this writing from Plutarch. Here's what he says, quote, With full knowledge and understanding, they themselves offered up their own children, and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without a tear or moan, but should she utter a single moan or let fall a single tear, she had to forfeit the money, and her child was sacrificed nevertheless. And the whole area before the statue was filled with a loud noise of flutes and drums, so that the cries of wailing should not reach the ears of the people. End quote. So we see here that there was to be no hesitation, uh, or else the offering would be lost. It wouldn't be effective. If you showed remorse or hesitation or regret in what you did. Now, this is what was going on, of course, with Moloch worship and later on with the Phoenicians and Carthaginians, so it was a common practice throughout the region. But what did the God of Israel have to say about all this? Well, he had to say a lot. So, God's commandment to the people of Israel was that no child sacrifice was to be allowed by either natives or strangers. And this is seen most explicitly in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. Here's what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Moloch, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man, and will cut him off from among his people, because he has given one of his children to Moloch, to make my sanctuary unclean, and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do it all, close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch, and do not put him to death. Then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. So when we look at God's law to Israel concerning the um, punishment for those who give their children to Moloch, there's a couple things I want to point out there. First, uh, it's one of the few laws in which the death penalty is mandatory, okay? Uh, God says you shall, that person shall surely be put to death. And this is similar to God's law regarding first-degree murder. So in, in, in those laws, um, the person who purposely kills another person and is found guilty of it they're, they're not able to ransom their life with paying money to the deceased person's family or anything like that, uh, not exile or anything. It, death is the only allowable punishment for that person. Um, and the same is true in this case. God makes it mandatory that those who kill their children, sacrifice them to Moloch, must be put to death. But what's interesting more so, it's one thing to say that the punishment must be death. It's another thing to say that if 
the people don't put the person to death, that the people will be judged for it, for not doing justice. And I could not find any other law except this one, which brings that out. Uh, Again, uh, God says that um, if the people of the land close their eyes to that man and don't put him to death, then I will judge that people. So, so there's a punishment upon the man, but there's also a punishment upon the people for not putting him to death. So this is very serious, and and God is uh, very firm against the uh, sacrifice of children. Now, of course, Israel fails to do this. They fail to obey God. Solomon established worship of Moloch in 1 Kings 11, verse 5. Uh, we do see a few kings try to make it right. King Josiah tries to reform things, and he, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 23, uh, defiles Topheth. He he destroys it so that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. So he's trying to tear down uh, the, the worship of Asherah, Baal, and Moloch. Um, but ultimately, it's not fully successful, uh, maybe temporarily, but once King Josiah is dead then things seem to revert back to the way they were. And so, ultimately, God brings judgment upon the nation of Israel because of their sin, because um, of their idolatry. Now, what's interesting is that, yes, uh, God mentions all of their sins, sexual sins, the, the Baals, the Asherahs, but in the book of Jeremiah, we see explicit mention is made regarding child sacrifice, and that being uh, the predominant reason for judgment. So let me read to you Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 30 through 34. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride for the land shall become a waste. And so we do see that eventually um, Jerusalem and Judah are judged, punished, and destroyed because of their sin. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. What do we see about Moloch and Topheth in the New Testament? Well, Moloch himself is not mentioned, but Topheth is, kind of indirectly, but it is very interesting what comes of Topheth. So we saw before that Topheth was in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, Topheth, the word itself, means place of burning, or probably means place of burning. Uh, As we see, you know, the fire that was used to heat up the statue for the sacrifice. Now, uh, in the Greek, when when mentioning the valley of the son of Hinnom, how you would write that in the Greek is Ge-Hinnom. Okay, so Ge meaning valley, Hinnom, valley of Hinnom. Okay, so uh, Gehinnom is the valley of the son of Hinnom, and it's described, or the word 
used for it in the New Testament is Gehenna. So Gehenna is referring to the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now Gehenna eventually becomes the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. By the time of Jesus, it was a garbage dump full of refuse, waste, everything. And it was always smoldering. Uh, and is, I think it was south, uh, south of the city in the valley there. Now, whenever the Greek word Gehenna is used in the scriptures, it's translated into English as hell. So whenever you see the word hell in the New Testament, that word in the Greek is Gehenna. And it's referring to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which used to be a garbage dump. And Jesus describes it as the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Mark chapter 9, verse 47 through 48. And it's essentially a place of smoldering death, uh, the valley of slaughter, as Jeremiah mentioned it. Hell, essentially. So Gehenna is an image of hell. And to put it in very stark terms, hell, Gehenna, is the place where babies were murdered and offered to Moloch. Okay, so what are some of the principal themes of Moloch that we see? Well, first of all, we see this desire to uh, um, attain economic and material blessing. So again, we live in a world that has disease, death, and destruction. It can't be avoided. can't be eliminated. So kind of as an insurance policy or a guarantee, death, or the god of death, must be satisfied or placated. And if you feed death, the idea being that death won't bother you. If you feed the monster, you'll be left alone. Okay, And your faithfulness, because the monster demands a sacrifice, the god demands a substitute, you would get blessed because of it. There's a concept of a death and resurrection, but it's the death of someone else for your benefit in your life. It's also seeking to avoid judgment, suffering, or pain. Again, death demands a sacrifice, so either you die or someone else dies for you. Either you suffer or someone else suffers for you, and you can, you can hold off death and destruction if you offer that which is innocent, and the judgment falls upon the thing sacrificed. And this goes back to the mythologies of Mot, Moloch, Baal, and Asherah. So what are some examples of Moloch thought or Molochism today? Well, I think the clearest one is that of abortion. Um, because in abortion, it is believed that by sacrificing the child, and it's not really viewed as a sacrifice, but the goal is still to enable some kind of future economic blessing or fertility. For example, you want a career or education opportunities. Having a child holds, holds that back, right? Or if you view yourself as poor, having a child is a drain financially. So if you want to have stronger finances in the future, you sacrifice that child. Or if you're not ready to raise a family, Maybe your maturity level is not high enough. You want to sacrifice that child so that in the future you can have a better family, better children, and be in a better spot to do that. So the idea being that it is better for the child to die than for it to be poor or to suffer. And certainly it's better for the child to die than for you to be held back from your success economically and materially.
And there's plenty of examples of uh, the killing of children for these reasons in the ancient world. The Romans had abortion. It wasn't as common because it was unsafe, but they instead just abandoned their children or exposed them to the elements, and the children died that way. Uh, let me just read to you uh, from Plutarch. Here's what he says about uh, this giving up of, of one's children or killing of one's children. He says, quote, For when poor men do not rear their children, it is because they fear that if they are educated less well than is befitting, they will become servile and boorish and destitute of all the virtues, since they consider poverty the worst of all evils. They cannot endure to let their children share it with them, as though it were a kind of disease, serious and grievous. And then we have from Gaius Rufus, who's a Roman philosopher around 65 AD. Here's what he says to those who would sacrifice their children to avoid poverty. He says, How do the little birds, which are poorer than you, feed their young, the swallows and nightingales and larks and blackbirds? Do these creatures surpass man in intelligence? You certainly would not say that. In strength and endurance, then? No. Still less in that respect. Well, then, do they put away food and store it up? Not at all. And yet they rear their young and find sustenance for all that are born to them. The plea of poverty, therefore, is unjustified. But what seems to me most monstrous of all, some who do not even have poverty as an excuse, and in spite of prosperity and even riches, are so inhuman as not to rear later-born offspring, in order that those earlier-born may inherit greater wealth, by such a deed of wickedness planning prosperity for their surviving children." Now, again, that was a Roman philosopher around 65 AD, uh, and he's, the argument is uh, some of these people are killing their later children because they don't want to dilute their inheritance because uh, they have to give them an inheritance. So it would be better to give all of your money to one or two children than to give your money to three, four, or five children uh, so that you can have more riches for the uh, earlier born children. So the point in all this is that... Uh, the Moloch thinking is basically any mindset that sacrifices others for future present success. And there's other examples of this, not just child sacrifice or abortion, but you have spending in debt, uh, a culture that spends uh, more than it takes in, basically passing on debt and slavery to the next generations, all for the sake of getting things now. That is a that is the same category, the same mindset of sacrificing the future, sacrificing those who come after us, sacrificing the young or the unborn for present success. And, you know, things like experimentation, uh, you know, embryonic stem cell research, again, the idea that we will sacrifice the most vulnerable and the future in order to get some kind of blessing today. Um, so anyways, in the end, this is... The, the god Moloch and the god of, of death. And what, what we see in this god is a twisting of something that is uh, somewhat true, right? So the demons are not creative. The demons are destructive. They don't create anything. They take something that already exists and twist it and destroy it. So one example being with Moloch that, yes, uh, we do live in a sinful world. Okay, and all humans are slaves to sin, and all humans deserve death. And either we're going to die, or someone has to die in our place. But the difference is, is that in the case of Moloch, you had to provide the sacrifice for Moloch. 
But in the case of the God of the Bible, he provides the sacrifice for you, and that sacrifice is a willing sacrifice. It is Christ himself who willingly goes to the cross to uh, pay for the sins of his people as a good king and a good leader should. So there's a twisting that takes place with Moloch, but the truth of it is found only in the gospel. So anyways, uh, I want to look more in the future at how these gods relate to each other, Baal, Asherah, Moloch, and, and how we can move forward in our culture today dealing with these uh, seemingly resurrected or resurgent uh, demons. Uh, so, but anyways, um, if you have any questions or comments about Moloch or anything related to the worship of Moloch, please email me at the gbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, find Find me at Governed by God or, or look up Eric Leupold and you can contact me there. And again, please share the show with, with friends, co-workers, and family. Again, just trying to get this out to as many people as possible. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, take care and God bless.